0: This is The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again.
1: Welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And today, we're going to be talking to a Hall of Fame announcer. Texas Sportscaster of the Year, seven times, really has been the voice of the Texas Rangers for 40 years. We're delighted that we've got Eric Nadell with us today, but he's going to tell us a little bit about a medical emergency that he experienced. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You know, if our listeners out there, they hear your voice. They know that you're with the Rangers and you travel a lot. Tell us what happened when you were in New York one time.
2: Well, it was a really odd situation. I was um, actually in the seventh inning stretch broadcasting a game at Yankee Stadium and went to take a break. And I was standing in the bathroom and I I started seeing some little insects like little gnats circling around my head. And when I went to bat them away, I realized they weren't gnats. They were some figment of my imagination. And I went back after the game that night and Googled and found out that what I was seeing probably was floaters, which are little, I guess, pieces of uh, the gel that has fallen off the inside of your eyeball. and it can be a sign of some sort of a uh, retinal problem uh, and to kind of keep an eye on it. Since I wasn't home, you know, I didn't go running right to the eye doctor, which I wish I had done, because later that day, and we're talking now like 24 hours later, one of my eyes sort of glazed over. It seemed as if somebody had painted it with Vaseline. It was it was nighttime by then, and I called a friend of mine in Baltimore, who is an eye surgeon, and he said uh, you've got a retinal detachment most likely, or at least a tear, and he made an appointment for me the following morning to go see a specialist in New York. And by the time I got there, he said that uh, you know I had a really bad tear, and all he could do at that point was kind of an emergency fix uh, and do several hundred laser shots to uh, put the retina back on the wall, but that was by no means, you know, the, the final solution to it. And when I got back to Dallas, uh, fortunately a a friend of mine at UT Southwestern was able to get me in to see their number one retina specialist, Dr. He, and he said, yeah, you need the surgery and it's not going to be an easy surgery. And as soon as all of the blood clears out of your eye, we should do it as soon as possible because you're in danger of having a complete detachment. So as it turned out, it was a a week or two later that I was able to get in there and have the surgery. And he basically saved the eyesight in my eye. And it would have been a lot easier had I gone in there at the first warning sign, but you know, he did what he could. And so the eyesight in that eye didn't get all the way back to 2020 got it. It got back to about 20, between 2030 and 2040. As it turned out, four years later, I was broadcasting a game in Arlington and it seemed to me as if a curtain was starting to come down over my other eye, over the left eye. And I took an immediate break and called Dr. He, who had given me his cell phone, uh, because he said, if you have one detachment, you're in danger of having another one. He said, I'll meet you tomorrow morning at UT Southwestern, at 8 a.m. and that one we caught in time just as it was starting to detach and he got the eyesight back into that eye pretty much all the way back to 2020. So that was kind of my uh, retinal detachment saga and I'm so grateful to Dr. He and the people at UT Southwestern who basically saved my sight.
1: What an incredible story. So to go back to when you were in New York The ophthalmologist that you saw in New York did kind of an emergency procedure with the laser, is that correct, before you could have the other surgery?
2: Yes, and as it was explained to me in a lot of cases, the laser attachment is enough, but my tear was so significant, uh, the damage was so significant that 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 wasn't going to work, Uh, that wasn't going to hold. And so fortunately for me, Dr. He was able to do this extremely delicate surgery and fix it, you know, almost entirely.
1: You know, Thomas and I interviewed an ophthalmologist not long ago and she used that same description, kind of like wallpaper in the eye. Do you think now that you've had surgery on both eyes, that you're set or could it reoccur?
2: I feel I'm pretty safe, and that's how it's been explained to me. However, I go in uh, the first couple of years, I went in every six months to, you know, have Dr. He look inside there and make sure everything was holding, uh, make sure there were no dramatic changes in vision uh, in my eyes. Now I go in once a year. Uh, so, you know, you can't be too careful. So, you know, I'm fortunate that I have the people at UT Southwestern to, to keep an eye on it, no pun intended. Uh, but every year um, during the offseason, I'll go in there and have them do a complete exam. You know, Eric, to our
1: listeners, and they hear you do the Ranger broadcast, but you're, you're kind of speaking from a different side of the microphone now. What is your advice to people if they're having eye ailments or if they're seeing floaters? What would you tell them to do?
2: Well, I'd say get into an, an ophthalmologist as soon as you can. Just don't take any chances. If there's anything irregular with your vision. know, and I actually had cataract surgery several years before the retinal detachment. And, you know, that improved my eyesight dramatically. And a lot of people are very reluctant to get the cataract surgery. I'm, I'm not exactly sure why it's a very simple procedure these days, uh, but people seem to wait and wait and wait. Maybe they feel that, you know, Cataracts are only for old people, but I had cataract surgery in my forties and it made a huge difference for me, obviously in being able to do my job where I need to see, you know, distances, uh, but also just in, you know, being able to watch movies and being a, a safer driver, I would say anything irregular in your eyesight, get in there. And, you know, when you get to a certain age, I'm not exactly sure what that age is, you should probably go in and see an ophthalmologist every year or two anyway just as a general checkup the way you would get a physical exam you know at a at a family practice that doctor you
1: yeah, know that's great advice Eric and you know as you look back even before that yankee game you described was there any prior indication to you that you might have a retinal problem
2: no and i didn't know anything about it you know i knew nothing about retinal detachments Uh, Other than the fact that uh, I had a a friend in Baltimore who I grew up with who was an eye surgeon and, you know, had mentioned a couple of things about me, but he about it to me. But he had told me how specialized things are, you know, in that uh, world of ophthalmology. And he was basically a cataract surgeon and he didn't mess with the retina, but there were people in his practice who did. Uh, but I had never had any signs of any problems whatsoever. Breaking ball, strike three, call! The Rangers are going to the World Series!
3: From 12 years ago, the voice of your Texas Rangers, Eric Nadell. What a moment in Texas Rangers history. And could you imagine not being able to see that because of a retina tear? If you've ever had those floaters, you know what we're talking about. And Eric continues his story next on the human side of healthcare.
0: This is the Human Side of Healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again.
3: Welcome back. We're going to continue talking now with legendary Texas Rangers baseball announcer Eric Nadell. Recently had something that we've talked about here on the human side of healthcare, a retina tear that could have, if left untreated, potentially ended his career. Our story on that from the last segment is in our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. Would love to have you come over there and listen. But now Steve and Eric are going to talk baseball for just a bit. We just want
1: to congratulate you on that lifetime contract you've got with the Texas Rangers. What an honor that you have that.
2: Well, thanks. It's kind of reassuring, you know, basically that I can work for as long as I want to. Hopefully nobody's going to have to tell me when to stop. You know, at this point in my life, I'm no longer doing all of the games. I do about three quarters of the games. And the Raiders have been great. They've been really flexible with me. You know, most of the announcers, you know, as they get older, stop doing a full schedule, uh, both because it's physically and mentally really demanding, and even more so you get to a stage in your life where there are other things you want to do during the spring and summer that you can't do if you're doing every baseball game. We pretty much play every day you know, for seven months. So they've been really good with me in allowing me to work out a number of games that works for me. And I'm really grateful for that.
1: You know, I've been to Cooperstown to visit, but I can only imagine how the chills went up and down your back when you got the Ford C. Frick Award from the National Baseball Hall of Fame at Doubleday Field. What an honor. Congratulations on that.
2: Thanks. The whole thing was kind of surreal because, you know, the first two announcers to win the Ford Frick Award were Mel Allen and Red Barber. And they were the New York Yankees announcers as I was growing up in New York City. And they were my idols. They were really my first inspiration for going into this field, you know, as a career. I remember asking my dad when I was a little kid and we were listening to a game in the car. How did those guys get off work today so they could go to Yankee Stadium and watch the game and talk about it? And he said, No, that is their job. My dad was a dentist. And I said, Dad, you're going to go back to the office in a little while and you're going to fill cavities. And these guys go to Yankee Stadium and watch a baseball game. They've got a better job than you do. And (laughs) from that point on, from that point on, that was kind of a a dream of mine that, that I would get to do that. And Amazingly, you know, here I am some uh, 60 years later actually doing it.
1: Well, you know, you mentioned New York, so I've got to ask you this. You grew up in Brooklyn, so I got to assume you are a Brooklyn Dodger fan. Were you heartbroken when they went to LA? I
2: was. You know, I had just started going to games. I think it was, uh, it was the year that I turned seven when they moved. But I had been going to games, and one of our neighbors was Gil Hodges, who was the first baseman for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, and he, his son and I went to the same schools. So it was really a, a shocking thing for a, a little kid who had become a baseball fan, not understanding anything about the economics of baseball and why they would move. You know, the other thing was, you know, we had three teams in New York then the Dodgers and the Giants and the Yankees. And the Giants also moved, leaving us with just the Yankees, uh, who I had already been taught to hate because they were the evil empire and they would beat the Dodgers in the World Series seemingly every other year. And they were the only team we had left. So it was, it was rough, and I actually continued to root for the Dodgers for a few years because I loved the players, and it was the same players just because they were in Los Angeles and I couldn't actually go to the games. That didn't stop me from rooting for them, whereas my parents you know, would not root for them because they hated the owner so much for moving the team to Los Angeles. And then a few years later, the New York Mets arrived as an expansion team, and we all became Mets fans and you know, kind of let the Dodger thing go.
1: So you kind of let the Dodgers go. That's a, that's a great story. You know, I'm sure you're asked this question, Eric, all the time. But, you know, you were there. You saw Nolan Ryan get his 5,000 strikeouts. And I know you've seen a lot of great moments, especially when the Rangers won the pennant and went to the World Series. Are there other moments over your career that stand out?
2: Well, there were some really um, special games, unique games. In particular, there was a game in Baltimore in 2007 when the Rangers scored 30 runs, which is the only time in modern Major League history that that has occurred. A team has scored 30 runs. It was a really weird happening because it was the first game of a doubleheader in Baltimore And the manager, Ron Washington, decided that, you know, he wasn't going to play all of his regular starters in both games of the doubleheader. That's not the unusual part. The unusual part is that Wash decided he would save the regulars for the second game and he would play most of his substitutes in the first game. So he didn't even have his best lineup on the field in that first game. And yet the Rangers, who fell behind three to nothing and were trailing three to nothing going to the fourth inning, somehow managed to score 30 runs in the final six innings of the game. And. Uh, in the ninth inning, a, a, a backup infielder named Ramon Vasquez hit a three-run homer to get the Rangers to 30. And that's probably about as excited as I've ever been calling a Rangers game, with the exception of the, the two occasions when the Rangers won the pennant.
1: You know, the other thing I read about you, and I just want to confirm it, when Ruben Sierra came to the Rangers, you went and learned Spanish and actually have become quite fluent in Spanish. Is that true?
2: Yeah, it's true. You know, when Ruben came up, he didn't speak English. And at that time, teams did not have translators uh, as they do now. And so if we wanted to talk to Ruben, we'd have to find uh, one of the two bilingual players on the team. Jose Guzman was the one who is usually most helpful and have him serve as a translator. But a lot of times you couldn't find that guy. He was off doing something else. And then, As far as, you know, doing a post-game interview is concerned, same sort of thing. We could never have Ruben on the air unless there was somebody available to translate. So I decided it would make sense for me to learn Spanish. And maybe within a year or two, I'd actually be able to have conversations with Ruben because I figured he'd be around for a really long time, which he was. And it turned out to be maybe one of the best decisions that I've made in my life because it's helped me so much in relating to the Latin American players. And in order to become more proficient in Spanish, I've done a lot of traveling in Latin America to the countries these players come from. You know, I've been to the Dominican and Cuba and a few of the places in Mexico where they have baseball. And it helps a lot. The players trust you more. They'll probably tell me more interesting things. You know, just culturally, it's been really interesting for me to go to these countries and and see what sort of background these guys have.
1: You know, you mentioned getting background, and I know this is kind of crazy. You go to the ballpark all the time. You go with the Rangers. Do you ever, like when the Rangers are off, go to the Frisco Rough Riders just to look at some of the young players coming up?
2: No. On my days off, I usually stay as far away from baseball as I can (laughs) Although I love the Frisco experience. Um, For many years, we would play an exhibition game at the Frisco ballpark. And I really love that. You know, I I love minor league baseball. I love the way they make it so much fun at the park, you know, for families. And Frisco does as good a job of that as anybody. And so I, I definitely urge people to go there and now have their best pitching prospect, Jack Leiter, there. Definitely worthwhile. Definitely a lot of fun.
1: You're so right. Going to the single-A and double-A and triple-A games is a lot of fun. So, Eric, you interview a lot of people. You interview players. What question should I have asked you either about your retina detachment or about your life that you'd like to share with the listeners?
2: Oh, that's that's interesting. I've, I've never had that one asked, that's a great one. Um, I think we covered the retinal detachment pretty well. well yeah, one of the things I always – Uh, like to know from the players is how did they get interested in baseball in the first place? You know, or in my case, how did you get interested in baseball? How did you get interested in broadcasting and always, you know, who were the people who were the biggest influences on you both personally and professionally? You know, that, that always seems to elicit uh, an interesting response from people, but you you did, you did awfully good one way or another. You seem to get the answers out of me. (laughs) he's a good study. But,
3: you know, he did congratulate you at the beginning of the segment about that lifetime contract. Truly incredible. And to think that something as simple as a retina tear could have jeopardized that.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I always thought that the only thing that would prevent me, you know, from continuing to work into my 70s, for example, would be if something happened to my voice. That was the thing that scared me. I never For a second thought about my eyesight being something that could possibly you know derail my career so uh, again it was just really fortunate that i had access to the doctors that i did and you know i'm able to continue to do my job even though my eyesight isn't 100 percent perfect the way that it used to be you know it was 2020 before all this stuff started happening but uh it's it's pretty close to 2030 right now and that's more than good enough
3: this has been Eric Nadell. If you missed any of it, it's on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. Now, we're going to talk to another kind of local legend in our book around here heart transplant surgeon, Dr. Brian Lima. But not about medicine, we're going to talk about his career and how he went from an immigrant to a cardiovascular transplant surgeon. That's next. But Steve, before we go, I know you have a reminder for us all. You know, Thomas, sometimes people
1: wait a little too long to get that flu shot and they contract the flu. So it's not too early. Let's try to get those flu shots now.
0: Welcome back to the human side of healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller.
1: Welcome to the human side of healthcare. You know, we usually talk to physicians about their expertise and things they do. Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Brian Lima, who is the surgical director of heart transplantation and mechanical circulatory support at Medical City Heart Hospital, but it's more about his personal life, a book he's written, and some of the things that he really champions. Dr. Lima, welcome back to the show.
4: Thank you again so much for for having me back on the show.
1: A good place to start, can you just explain to our listeners a little bit about your life and why you became a surgeon?
4: Sure. Um, I grew up in a Cuban immigrant household. didn't really... Have professional role models speak of, but I had very, you know, hardworking, uh, you know, blue-collar you know, upbringing and parents that had, you know, led by example. I just gravitated towards the sciences, but really didn't really have a good sense once I got to college of what I wanted to be. And so uh, during my kind of exploration in the sciences, I I did a uh, summer research program at NYU Medical School. It was the summer uh, between my junior and senior year of college. And just by sheer happenstance, I was connected with, to shadow for that summer, some general surgeons, uh, cancer surgeons. And uh, they were uh, very enthusiastic and, and sort of adopted me into the program and were very excited to kind of get me into the operating room to scrub in and watch. And so this was you know, it's one of those experiences where uh, it's either going to be, wow, this is amazing, or uh, you pass out, you know, seconds into it. And I I was definitely the former. I could not stop watching. My eyes just lit up. I I loved it. I I felt, you know, the hours flew by. I was captivated by it. And it was sort of, uh, I think, you know, not many people get the opportunity or have the, the luck to have that moment of epiphany that early in their lives, but I, I certainly did, and I, it was that I wanted to be a surgeon. I didn't care how long it was going to take, I didn't care how difficult it was going to be, but I knew right then and there that's what uh, I wanted to do. And so over time, you know, through medical school, it, it morphed into wanting to be a heart surgeon. And some of that had to do with some of the you know family tragedies I had experienced early on, with my father having had a heart attack when I was young. So uh, the heart was always um, something that scared me, right? Heart disease scared me. It was a traumatic experience for me growing up. So in watching these amazing uh, role models, you know, surgeons and chief residents and faculty at Duke, or I, or I did my medical school education, it, it seemed like a natural fit, and I wanted to emulate those role models. So that's sort of how it all came together.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a great story. I actually looked at a video regarding you, and you mentioned Duke, and your preceptor gave you a pretty hard time at Duke. Would you say that's a
4: fair assessment? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Well, things in in the educational realm, medical education, uh, surgical education, training, residency, maybe a little more touchy-feely these days, but I definitely went through uh, at a time when it was quite the opposite. It was very in-your-face, uh, put you on the spot, call you out if you don't know the answer, the correct answer, or be uh, not too shy about pointing out all the reasons why what you're doing is incorrect and the manner in which you're doing it is incorrect. So you really, really, really had to have thick skin. It was very difficult for many people, uh, and at times, you know, myself included, to withstand that sort of... Uh, Feedback, if you want to call it that. (laughs) But I think it was motivational. You kind of had to rise to the occasion. It forced you to really dot your I's, cross your T's, uh, always be at the ready for uh, what the question might be, or it forced us to have to be at our best at all times, is I think the way to sum it up. You know, that level of accountability, I think the way in which it was conducted may not seem. uh, universally kind of uh, the best way. So to but I, I, for me, I think it worked really, really well. and it instilled in me a sense of work ethic and uh, dedication to patient care and attention you know, meticulous attention to detail that sticks with me today. So uh, I'm very grateful to be honest.
1: You know, in that same video, you said regardless of what you do in life, find your gravitas and find your passion. Can you explain mm-hmm. to our listeners what you meant by that? Sure. I think uh, like many people in competitive
4: arenas uh, and, you know, surgical education, medical education was certainly no exception. Maybe the ultimate example of that. I lost my way, like many others do in different fields. You get caught on the hamster wheel. You just, you're just running. You're just trying to keep up with everybody and you lose sight of uh, what it is or why it is that you're doing what you're doing. And uh, I got caught up in, um, someone referred to it in a book I read called the arms race of kind of stacking your resume, your, your CV, as we say, the in the healthcare field, all your publications, research experience, accolades, right? I have to admit, I I went through that at that one point, you start to lose sight of why you're doing it and more concerned with accumulating those things so that you can, you know, set yourself apart from the pack so that you can get that highly coveted fellowship position or research grant or promotion. And so one of my faculty mentors in research kind of sniffed that out on my part. And that was the first time I heard the word gravitas. You know, he made it, very clear that it wasn't about quantity, but quality. You know, you'd rather be involved in a research study. It may take longer to generate the results, but the results are impactful. Uh, They actually change healthcare, improve the lives of many versus just trying to get quick, you know, insignificant uh, contributions to the research literature. Uh, And so that's when I became acquainted with gravitas, having that presence, that willingness to stick to your moral compass and to your purpose. And that also was a very valuable lesson that I learned during that period of time uh, to never lose sight of uh, why you're doing what you're doing and to always stay aligned with your moral compass and the overall purpose of what you want to accomplish.
3: This is the Human Side of Healthcare show, and we are talking with Dr. Brian Lima, a heart transplant surgeon at Medical City Heart Hospital, who has done something besides just medicine. Steve? You know, you've written a book, Heart to
1: Beat. Why did you become an author? It was never part of the original plan.
4: It sort of came about organically over time. I think once I came up for air, following my 10 years of of surgical training, and I was able to sort of reflect on all of that and the lessons learned at the same time looked around and more often than not saw many people who really were struggling in the sense that they had come on hard times, to cope on hard times or weren't reaching their full potential or were stuck in a rut, not advancing to where they thought they should be in their lives. And I felt that my story how I went about it, what I learned could help people reach their full potential. And it just sort of came uh, its own snowball kind of thing. I just started taking notes and writing down observations. And slowly but surely that, uh, that started to accumulate into hundreds of pages of just random notes and thoughts. And it was a labor of love. It took years. Honestly, it took about five or six years for me to, Coalesce all of those thoughts, random thoughts, into a coherent book that went through systematically the different stages of my life, what I learned at each point, and how it might benefit people in their own life struggles.
1: Heart to Beat. Why that title? Well, well of course, as you know, heart surgeon. I one of the things
4: I I really enjoyed about the book, the intellectual challenge of in the word heart into the different themes I wanted to discuss in the book. So the premise of the book obviously is based on a rather famous quote from Babe Ruth, it's hard to beat someone who never quits. And if you substitute the word heart for hard, heart to beat, well, a heart has to beat. And of course, that's where I focus my professional life on. And then The Heart Way, which is also part of the subtitle, The Heart Way to Life, is based on how the heart, if you use it as the ultimate kind of analogy, no matter what's going on in your life, uh, it just keeps beating. And I feel that that in and of itself, just kind of continuous movement, continuous self-improvement, acknowledging we're always a work in progress to always keep moving and, and improving. That philosophy, that mindset is the unifying theme for the entire book.
1: You know, you've said that complacency is a real adversary. Why is that, and how do we avoid being complacent? Complacency
4: is a, is our natural instinct. I think in the book and Hartway, I, I talk about a quote from Nick Saban. You know, the arguably the best football coach in, in college football history, right, Alabama. He doesn't say the word complacency directly, but he refers to how it's in our nature, even in elite athletes that he coaches, to not continually push the envelope, that you reach a certain level of success. And as in his case, right, you know, he could have given up after a one, winning one national championship, but he keeps pushing and pushing, you know there's countless other examples of Michael Jordan's of the world. We're always a work in progress. You know, our, our work is never done. There's always room for improvement. And I think if more folks did that, not only would they be more successful in their lives, but I think they would have more fulfillment in their lives. There'd be less burnout. There'd be less, perhaps mental health disease, less stress. I think uh, acknowledging that we are never perfect. There is no ultimate destination. I think it's, uh, you know, as an example, and even in my own career, uh, I could have, you know, devolved into the mindset of, well, I trained for 10 years, I'm done, and uh, I'm a heart surgeon, I'm good at it, and that's it, right? But it's the, quite the opposite. The field is continually evolving. There's always new techniques, new therapies, uh, new ideas that I have to um, stay abreast of. So, and that's what I, you know, I owe that to my patients, but it's it's part of the process. You're
3: never done. We're talking with Dr. Brian Lima. He came over with his family as an immigrant from Cuba. He became a cardiovascular transplant surgeon, and now he runs that program at Medical City Heart Hospital. He does have a book out. It's called Heart to Beat, and he shares more of his journey to becoming not only a surgeon, but one of the best in the world. And he works right here with us in DFW.
0: covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller.
3: Welcome back. Let's jump right back into our story with Dr. Brian Lima. You know, when anybody comes over as an immigrant, trains themselves and then becomes one of the top cardiovascular surgeons in the country, we want to know the ingredients of that recipe. And Dr. Lima has written a book called Heart to Beat.
1: So for people that have read your book, what was your goal as the main empowering message for the takeaway for them?
4: My, I think the main take home point of the book is that hard work can always outperform sheer talent. I think most people believe that you're destined to, you know, a certain degree of success that's predestined. Uh, and I, and I argue the complete opposite that despite how much or how little talent you believe you have, if you put in the work, if you put in the time, you can always outdo those with natural talent. I think that's to me the main take home of the, of the book, take home message of the book. And in addition to that, I, I try at the end of the book, at least to include a little bit more specifics related to heart health specifically, you know, we kind of go through the metaphorical heart through the whole book. And then the last chapter is really dedicated to heart health in general, uh, wellness and If we exercise and do all the right things to promote heart health, we'll also promote wellness, which will also have kind of cascading benefits into all aspects of our life. So I touch on that at the end of the book, but I think it does help come full circle with the metaphorical and sort of figurative um, references
1: to the heart. So it's amazing how in your book, as you indicated, you're tying in heart health and wellness. You know, I know our listeners uh, are really intrigued by your story, your book. How do they find you on social media and learn more about you and your book?
4: So, uh, I, I've tried to make it as easy as possible. So, it's uh, so for Instagram and LinkedIn and uh, Facebook. It's my handle is Brian Lima, MD, and also my uh, web page is www.brianlima.md.com or hearttobeatbook.com. Also, uh, on our Medical City Heart Hospital website, I have a um, profile page as well.
1: You know, you mentioned in the interview earlier when you were with some surgeons, you knew you wanted to go into medicine. The video I referenced earlier, observing your first heart transplant, you said, is what was the passion for you to become a transplant surgeon. Is that correct? It is. I
4: I think once I went through medical school and got to rotate through the different subspecialties in medicine and then within surgery, it was really heart surgery and heart transplant surgery specifically uh, doing surgery for failing hearts, replacing hearts, or putting in mechanical heart pumps. But it was the heart transplant operation itself that just mesmerized me. it's hard to put into words really Um, just seeing that for the first time, how, you know, you're looking into this, uh, this person's, you know, patient's chest opened, uh, heart, their old hearts removed, there's sort of an empty cavity and then uh, a new heart, you know, brought out (laughs) of a cooler sewn in and then within an hour, the heart just starts beating again, this new heart. Right. And that just um, solidified for me, that I was on the right path. This is specifically within the realm of surgery, heart surgery, what I wanted to dedicate my career to, which, which just, you know, at that moment meant, okay, that means more years of training. So it's a long path in the clinical sort of different pathways for, for training in different aspects of medicine, different branches of medicine. It's the longest track, but that didn't matter to me. And I think it just was all purely about I need to learn how to do this and do this from the best. So that that solidified in my mind when I watched that surgery, for sure.
3: Dr. Lima, I know this probably is something that is subconscious for you at this point, but is there something from your life experience that is now a main takeaway that you use every day?
4: Uh, Well, I I would say you have to be, uh, there's two things. It's actually, it's a daily ritual that I go through uh, and many, Authors or self-help gurus cite this as a as an important aspect of their daily routine and practice, and that is you have to practice uh, gratitude. You have to acknowledge the good. You know, hey, uh, I'm alive. I have good health. I have uh, my family as well. I have this amazing career. I've kind of going down from the most general and working your way inwards, all the positives uh, in your life. So I think you, you have to do that because it's so easy to get wrapped up in what's not going well or what didn't go the way you wanted it to or the failures along the way and stuff like that so for your own mental psychological well-being you have to go through that exercise of, of acknowledging the good grateful for what you what you have and what you've been able to do and that allows you to move past failures because failures are inevitable right and I think one of the most difficult, lessons. And, and, and obviously I think a challenge that I continue to struggle with, uh, but getting better at is how do you move past failures, um, in, in your life? Uh, and I think the key is not dwelling on them, continuing to take that next step and keep moving just like your heart, just keep beating, keep take the, that next step and, and try to do better on the next uh, opportunity, glean whatever you can from that, that mistake or that failure and move on. And I think, um, That, to me, is the most critical piece of uh, what my success can be attributed to, um, and I hope will continue to um, bear fruit in the future.
3: That's a great correlation of connecting those two together. I was going to ask you that very thing of what if you're not a heart surgeon and you've been through a couple of marriages and you've lost a couple of jobs and your car's been repossessed and now you're worried about the economy and everybody, every time you turn anything on, they're just telling you how bad it is. Sounds like you don't go into that story.
4: No, I mean I think it's well, we're all human and it's our natural inclination is to panic or dwell on feel sorry for yourself and focus on the negative, but at some point you have to, you know, I look at it also as the analogy of the the prize fighter, right? You know, or, you know you're you're fighting for your life and you can't just sit there, you know, it's not going to do anything. Once once that gels in your mind that inactivity or dwelling on the past are, is not going to impact the now you have to do something. You have to live in the now and take that next step. It starts to become habitual. Uh, and so it doesn't matter what walk of life uh, we're referring to, what, what your career is. Um, I think that resonates with everybody. And it's relevant to everybody. So, uh, that's, I think key for, for
3: being able to just handle those things in life that don't go the way we want them to. Hardship. You know, I would say that the vast majority of people listening to this are not physicians, and yet, in your own field of the last several years, there's been a lot of burnout. A lot of people have chunked it. What would you say to people that are sitting there looking at years invested into a career, and yet they don't want to go to work tomorrow morning?
4: Well, I think it's tough to be a physician. It's tough to be in the healthcare field. We've, we've had there's been a lot of traumatic issues and, and contributors to that stressors, COVID, of course, was one that, that really, to see you know many people afflicted with a disease that you can't help, I think it's all, it all goes back to um, the, having that discipline of making sure the conversations you have with yourself, that mindset is positive, that, uh, that your self-talk is not negative. That um, it's, it may be a, a, a trite kind of reference now, but the the whole imposter syndrome. Wow, do I really belong here? Do I should I really be you know feeling that whole thing? I think it's super important to have those positive conversations with yourself to focus on your own well-being. You know, as I talk about in the book, I do get into that. You know, you have to focus on yourself. I went through a total period of burnout when I finished my ten years. I, I couldn't recognize who I was versus my identity as a heart surgeon. It was all wrapped into one and you can't wrap your whole identity as a human being into your job. Uh, and I think physicians, you know, have the tendency myself included as an example to do that. And I think you can't do that. So undoing some of that, figuring out who you are outside of that, um, taking care of yourself, (laughs) I think is key. And I think, um, it's a process. It's, It's not, easy to turn that switch off when you've been throwing everything you have at something for such a long time.
3: Once again, Dr. Brian Lima from Medical City Heart Hospital. The book is called Heart to Beat. Steve? Thanks,
1: Thomas. Next week, we're going to be talking about sepsis. This is something that can find you at home and you can actually die before you get treatment in a hospital. And folks, don't forget, it's that time of the year again. Please remember to get your flu shot. So join us next week on the human side of healthcare.